told you it was a short song, right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I would ask you to pray that, that you would see Christ in this passage today. Uh, pray for your own heart. Pray for the heart sitting next to you as I pray for us. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your presence and look at your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see Christ. We pray that the way he taught, the way he lived, would be unfolded before our eyes and we would be drawn to him in a saving way, in a kingdom pursuit way. Lord, help us in the ways that we don't understand your word for it to make sense to us today. Father, help us to remember your word and keep it on our mind, even when we go from this place. Fill us with insight to how to apply it. Father, we pray for your light to go forth. We pray that the light of the gospel would shine through these verses. We joyfully acknowledge your word is living and active, and we pray that it would work on our hearts this morning. Please help me to teach clearly, present your son faithfully. Please help us all who who are listening to take it into our hearts. Father, do this work, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right. Have you ever gazed at the beauty of a field of Texas blue bonnets? If you have, put your hand up. I see a few hands that are not up. That's okay. Have you ever gazed at the beauty of a field of Texas blue bonnets? That's the, the state flower, by the way, of Texas. In 1901, the Texas legislature named the blue bonnet the official state flower of Texas But there was a fierce debate that year among three competitors for the state flower. The state flower distinction was a competition between A, the the cotton bowl, am I pronouncing it right, B-O-L-L, cotton bowl? You know what I'm talking about, right? That round, fluffy, white clump in which cotton grows. There was this economic incentive at that moment to try to make that the state flower to keep cotton on everyone's minds. But then there was another competitor in the race. That was the prickly pear cactus. Maybe you've seen that prickly pear cactus. It has a very pretty, cheerful, delicate flower on its end, kind of one flower coming out the end of a cactus. Very unique look, very Texas look. But then there was another competitor in the race, the blue bonnet. That charming sight. If you've ever seen a blue bonnet, even if it's just one, hopefully you've seen a whole field of them growing. The blue bonnet. What a sight. That gorgeous, purplish, deep blue hue that looks like a royal blue carpet. To see a roadside or a sloping hill full of blue bonnets in Texas is what historian Jack McGuire once wrote and said. The blue bonnet It's a kind of floral trademark, almost as well known to outsiders as cowboy boots and the Stetson hat. The blue bonnet is to Texas what the shamrock is to Ireland, 
the cherry blossom to Japan, the lily to France, the rose to England, and the tulip to Holland. Bluebonnets are gorgeous. They change the landscape here in Texas, especially in late March and April. So what? Why are we talking about bluebonnets? Well, Jesus brings flowers. Yes, flower. Jesus brings wildflowers into his teaching today as his illustration for his teaching. And if we rightly look at wildflowers the way Jesus wants us to see them in our passage today, then the anxiety-laden landscape of our human heart can actually be transformed to see God's kingdom even more. Do you know that? So as, as much as you've seen beautiful wildflowers in Texas or other states and the way that has an effect on you, Jesus wants to put a wildflower before your eyes in our passage and do something with it to make you suddenly think something different spiritually that can change your heart for your whole life. It's fascinating what he does. I want to invite you to see that. So go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 25 to 34. This is found on page 811 in the Bibles by the seats nearby. And if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible with you. It's our gift to you as a church. But we're looking at page 811, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. I'll read 25 through 34. Let's look at God's word. Here's what it says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Amen. I pray we would understand the wisdom of, of letting go anxiety today, not just for letting go of anxiety's sake in and of itself, but that we might seek first the kingdom of God. And I pray that you would have it seared in your brain how Jesus wants you to look at creation, wildflowers especially, for spiritual benefit. We've got a lot to walk through today. There's several verses. Uh, before we look at the structure, just to orient ourselves, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon that spans three chapters, five, six, and seven in the book of Matthew. And last week, we saw 
how we're to store up treasures in heaven. We're not to live for treasures on earth and make them our treasure and compete between God and money and stuff and possessions. We're supposed to be loyally devoted to God. And Jesus here is telling us all these things because he wants those who have a heavenly citizenship to know what it looks like to live out that citizenship here on earth now. In other words, he's defining anew the people of God. And he's telling them, here's how those in the world will be able to recognize followers of the kingdom. Here's how you'll know that you are in the kingdom of God if your life is in conformity to these things. It's a wonderful sermon. We've been walking through it piece by piece. And today we're going to look at this section that we just read, and it breaks down nicely into three sections. There's three words named therefore in our passage. From a literary perspective, it's nice because the therefores break things up. It's different applications of thought, different things that build upon each other. Before we get into those therefores, let me just give you the main point of the passage. It's one sentence. It's very memorable. It's very easy. Here's the main point of what we just read. Jesus' main point is this. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't be distracted with needless anxiety. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't be distracted with needless anxiety. Anxiety is a word that shows up six times in our passage, and that means exactly what you think it means in the original language. Worry, fret, have occupied thoughts and concerns, being cumbered with many cares, maybe a stressed, tensed-up panic or a fear. Many of you know the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10 when Jesus says to this woman who is very troubled, you are anxious and troubled about many things. That's the kind of idea packed into this word anxiety here. And Jesus wants us to live different. He teaches us in this passage how anxiety is actually a rival to kingdom pursuits. And it's a logical conclusion to what he's been saying previously and what we covered last Sunday. If we're going to be those who don't treasure the things of the world, we don't just live for money and wealth and riches, we live for eternity, we serve and worship God, then we may be tempted to actually have anxiety about things of this world. So as we go about the marketplace, as we go about our families, Jesus knows our hearts and all the ways we're prone to be anxious. And he gives us here three lessons for how we can let go of anxiety. That's what I want to share with you today. And this is not going to be a, a pop psychology lesson of here's a three-step process and anxiety is just never in your life ever again. But in a real way, this is three lessons for how to let go of anxiety in a way that pleases God. And I want to give these to you. And they, they fit with the therefores in our passage. So here they are. Here's the three of them. Here's the way we'll roll through the passage today. The first lesson, if we're going to be those who who let go of anxiety and seek the kingdom, the first lesson is this. Take a moment to see God's good designs. I want to explain what that means. Take a moment to see God's good designs. That's the first lesson. This is verses 25 through 30. The second lesson that we're going to see is take hold of the ultimate priority of life. 
If you're going to be a person who lets go of anxiety, it's because you're a person who takes hold of the ultimate priority of life. That's the second lesson. That's verses 31 to 33. It begins with that, therefore. And then the third lesson in our passage is take it one day at a time. This is verse 34. There's another therefore there. Take it one day at a time. These three lessons, again, are not just because anxiety is a nice thing to not be carrying around, but Jesus wants to show you something today about how anxiety is actually toxic to your kingdom pursuits. So while those in the world might want to be free of anxiety in different measures just so they can have peace to kind of do whatever they want, because who wants anxiety anyway? fret and worry and panic and fear. Who wants that? Jesus gives us a different motivation. And Jesus calls Christ's followers to live in such a way where we battle anxiety differently and we're those who are marked with a noticeable peace and different pursuit as we are on mission. I want to show you these things. It's a wonderful passage. I hope you'll track along with me. Let's look at the first one. This first lesson in letting go of anxiety Take a moment to see God's good designs. That's what Christ is doing in this section. At first, it doesn't seem like that, though. At first, it sounds like Jesus simply tells everybody, hey, don't be anxious. Have you ever heard somebody tell you what not to do and then they don't explain anything else and you feel like they are just being mean and harsh? Don't get, don't get mad. Don't get anxious. Don't touch that. Don't do that. Don't struggle with that anymore. And that's all they say. You, you just feel like, I didn't need you to tell me that. Most of the things you struggle with, you know you shouldn't struggle with. And if somebody just says, don't do that, you feel like you're not helped. If somebody checked out of what Jesus was saying, that's how they would have felt if they would have just had verse 25, if that's all they would have had. Do you see what verse 25 says? Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, your body, what you're going to put on. And then Jesus gives us this Sweet question in verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Here's where he begins to offer and hold out to us a chance to glimpse, take a look at his good designs. And by that, I mean the way he's designed life to work. When he says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Isn't it wonderful that God designed your life to be about more than the things that you eat? If you added up all the times you've been eating food, today or at the end of the day, it would only be a certain number of minutes. You had a lot more life to live besides what you ate today. If life was merely what you put on, like your biggest accomplishment of the day is you just put the clothes that you have on right now, what kind of life would that be? Which, by the way, this is why it's so depressing to those who may have health ailments and they're far along in life and all they feel like they can do is just get dressed. They remember how life used to be more than just getting dressed. If you're a little kid, and I mean really little, getting dressed is so exciting. Life is all about what you get to wear, what you get to be dressed with. Well, Jesus is saying, don't worry about what you eat, what you wear. Consider, before we break this down, consider what the original hearers would have been thinking when he says this. Those who were poor, listening to Jesus, they would have felt a real need. Jesus, I need enough clothes to protect my skin from the elements. I need clothing 
that's warm or I will die in the cold. Those who are poor were, were riveted by what Jesus is saying here. Don't be anxious about your clothing. Those who were poor were struggling just to have enough food to eat or just to have enough things to drink. The poor would instantly be getting what Jesus is saying. They would understand these are real needs. They might be perplexed. Why is he saying don't be anxious about it? But they would see the need. The rich who might think they're not anxious about food and clothing. I've got plenty of clothes and plenty of options of things I could drink and partake in. It still applies there. It's a little bit more deceptive. For the rich, there's an anxiety that comes, not just do you have clothing, but do you have the right clothing? Do you have the clothing that will win you approval? Do you have the clothing that presents the status and the image you want? Do you have the food and clothing that you want? Do you have the food and drink that you can host a party with? Do you have your favorite foods? Many of you listening to me right now, we're in that category of rich. Very few of us wonder if we're going to have any food for the day. Very few of us wonder if we're going to have clothes to put on tomorrow. But there's still great elements of truth to what Jesus is saying about you don't need to be anxious about what you wear, what you eat and drink. And for us to be able to let go of that anxiety, if we ever get worried about these things, Jesus is going to tell us how. He begins telling us how right there in verse 27. We're going to come back to the birds in a moment in verse 26. But verse 27, he starts to tell us how. He says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus gives another piercing question. He's basically saying, what good is it that you're anxious about the things you're anxious about? Is that really extending your life? It's probably doing the reverse. But even a non-Christian, somebody who doesn't have much to do with Jesus at all, even a non-Christian, even someone of another religion, almost everyone in the world can agree with verse 27, can they not? Being anxious doesn't really help life. I saw this week that online there was a, a young lady named Katie. This was a news article from the United Kingdom. And she spoke about how she had somewhat conquered her anxiety. But I was sad because it was all a man-centered approach. She spoke about techniques of breathing and positive self-talk and mindfulness and coping by visualization. She talked about just the power of accepting herself. And she talked about how anxiety that used to cripple her life in panic attacks and fear, she's now a person who's more chill, more relaxed. She loves life. And what was so disheartening at the end of this article reading about her is God was nowhere in the picture. No theology whatsoever. I praise God that anxiety is seen as an issue that we want to be rid of. I praise God that those who try to battle it learn how to grow in self-awareness and learn how to grow in vulnerability and talking to others. But I don't praise God that many times when Anxiety is dealt with in the world. God is left out of the picture. Men and women are just stoking the fires of their own self-sufficiency. They replace anxiety with the sin of self-reliance, and they don't even see it. They trade one sin for the next. Jesus takes another approach. 
And that is showing us his good designs. And he does that with birds and flowers. That's what I want to show you. That's what I want to show you. We're going to camp out on this for a moment. It's so good. If you want to let go of anxiety, the first lesson you need to do is begin to take a moment and start seeing God's designs for how he set up the world. Jesus does that with birds. Birds. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Our world, although it's fallen, is a theater that displays the glory of God, displays his good character. We're meant to look at all that goes on in the fields and the wildlife and see God's handiwork, even down to the nibblings of birds. Now, this week, I was with one of our church members, Curtis, sitting outside at a cafe near the Triangle in Austin, Merritt Cafe, And God gave Curtis and I a living picture right up in our face of this. We we actually had this passage open and we were talking about it. And these pigeons came and landed on the trees right above us. And they just went to town having a feast. We knew that because they were loud. They were flapping around. Branches and twigs were falling onto our table. They were devouring these berries. You know what I did? I simply acknowledged it, kind of chuckled a little bit. Wow, that's intense. Went back to talking to Curtis. That's all I did. I do what many of us do, and that is we miss seeing God is feeding the birds. We miss it. We think, okay, that's just random. Birds are eating. Or that's funny. Birds are eating. Or we don't even notice it because it's so mundane. Brothers and sisters, is this not true of you? It's true of me. Maybe it's true of you. If we see a gorgeous sunset... What do we say? Oh, wow. God made that sunset. That is beautiful. If we see a powerful thunderstorm coming and we experience a powerful thunderstorm, we we might say things like, God is so powerful. Christians often talk this way. But if Christians see something so unglamorous as birds nibbling on a worm or having a berry, we just think, okay, that's that's just happening. Jesus is telling you, take note of God's good designs. Did you see what he said there in verse 26? The part that's theological, the part that the non-Christian doesn't appreciate, the part that those who just drink in evolutionary scientific worldviews don't appreciate, the part that you are prone to not appreciate. Did you see it in verse 26? It's when it says, your heavenly father feeds them. Brothers and sisters, you have to look at something as mundane as a bird eating and see, trace the hand of God giving them that food. You have to do that. If you do that, you're thinking and viewing life the way God designed you to view life. That's the way Jesus is instructing here. Jesus is going to build upon this idea in a moment. I was so blind to seeing God's dealings right in front of me when this passage was right in front of me. How much more when we haven't thought about this passage in a while? So the question remains, are you the type of person who has learned the art of just seeing God's designs everywhere? He does it when he's feeding the birds. I mean, God is omnipresent. He's invisible. What else would you be looking for to know that he's feeding the birds? What else would you be looking for? 
that there's a Bible on the ground and the birds all fly to the Bible and they start eating food laying around a Bible? Is that how you would know God's feeding them? God feeds the birds. And Jesus makes the point here. He's not just saying, see that he feeds the birds for no reason. He's making a point. He's saying the birds in verse 26, they don't sow and reap and gather into barns. They are so helpless. They are so dependable on God. They're not lazy. It's not that they do nothing. They look for food. They're active, but God feeds them. Are your eyes full of light to see this? You remember last week when we talked about how your eyes need to be full of light? And if your eye is full of light, your whole body is healthy? This is one of those aspects. Do you see the world in this way? Full of light. Consider God feeds the birds, and he can even make the birds come and feed you if he so chooses to do so, like the passage we read earlier with Elijah, the birds feeding him. And then Jesus leverages this truth, and he puts it out there in verse 26. He says, are you not of more value than they? Friends, this is an invitation to rest in the providence of God, to consider his sweet providence, his good care for his creatures that he has made. Are you not of more value than the birds? Yes, a resounding yes. You are created in the image of God as a human being. You are of far more value than the birds. Jesus is teaching us great things here. He's teaching us that just as the birds rely on the Lord for their food, you can rely on the Lord for your food. Why are you anxious about food? I like how John Chrysostom, a man who lived back in the 4th century, said of this passage. With these birds, he says, quote, Hence it's clear that it's, it's not our diligence but the providence of God. Even where we seem to be active, just like the birds seem to be active, it is the providence of God that finally accompanies everything. Close quote. That was way back in the 4th century. You don't have to have an amazing college degree to start getting this. You don't have to have worked through layers of education to get this. You just simply have to take notice of God feeding the birds and trace God's hand in it. Jesus is teaching them many things here. And this feeding of the birds is actually kind of interesting because there's a juxtaposition. Earlier in the sermon, Jesus had already taught them to be okay with foregoing food. When? When he taught them about fasting. Remember that a few verses ago? He taught them when you fast for going food. And he had already taught them about food to pray about it. You remember the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is stacking lesson upon lesson upon lesson. You don't need to worry. You don't need to have fret and anxiety about your basic needs. I will take care of you. And that has implications beyond when our basic needs are met to not worry about having to have our exact opinion or preference of the type of food we want. Jesus gives us insight in the tender care of the nibbling of birds. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. We fight anxiety with good theology, don't we? We understand God's work in the world. And God gives us another good design. 
points to wildflowers. So not only can you look at good designs of how he feeds those who are vulnerable and, and helpless, God's good designs come from another angle in the flowers. If you can see these designs that he's orchestrated, it's going to also do something to your anxiety. Look at verse 28. Here's the illustration. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. So to grasp this, maybe you haven't seen a lily. You, don't, you can't picture a lily. You've got to take a look at wildflowers, though. So you, you pick the flower you want to imagine in your mind right now. Roses, tulips, peony, a daisy, sunflower, daffodil, an iris, an orchid, a hydrangea. There are nearly 400,000 types of flowers. We're just going to stop there. The flowers of the earth are beautiful. Men, if you've wondered why so often ladies love flowers, it's because they have a better eye for the beauty of God than, than we probably do at times. But men, we can grow in appreciating flowers. It's not that it's a feminine thing to like a flower. And as, as a man, if you notice the beauty of a flower, something's wrong. Jesus wants you to notice the beauty of a flower for spiritual benefit. And Jesus does something fascinating here. He says in verse 29, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What does that mean? Even Solomon, the most wealthy man in the Old Testament, with all his riches and wealth, the robes he could wear, the, the silk, the, the garments, whatever he could wear, he wasn't arrayed as good as these flowers of the field. Fashion designers, no one can, no one can make an outfit better than what God has outfitted the flowers with. I mean, if you think about any good architectural design or, or beauty and aesthetics out there in fashion, if you take those principles that people are working with, you see all that and far more in the flowers God has created. The shades, the textures, the colors, the beauty, the way colors come together in a flower, the way the, the form goes forth from a flower is breathtaking if you notice it. And we're not supposed to just look at a flower and think that's beautiful. We're supposed to do something with it. We're supposed to think, okay, if God would make something that beautiful, which is so temporary, because he says later in verse 30, God so clothes the grass of the field. Grass, by the way, is that original word that just means plants of the field, all types of plants and grasses, flowers. These things in the field are going to be thrown into the oven. They're going to be used to heat up ovens or bailed up into hay for animals to eat. It's going to be consumed. It's just so temporary, but it's so beautiful. God, again, makes the argument. He leverages it to crush anxiety. He says, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Again, the lesser to the greater argument. Won't God clothe you and care for you? We may feel of less value than the birds or that he clothes the flowers better than us. We may feel that way when we're defeated, deflated, something's gone wrong. When we have anxiety about a job or some relationship going on or just some 
problem, brokenness in our own life. We, we have things that heap on anxiety and we forget what Jesus is teaching us here. That just as there is that ontological reality that the birds are fed by the Father and that ontological reality that the flowers are beautifully clothed, even though they didn't toil and spin and work for it, God gave it to them. There is an ontological reality that you are made in God's image and he's going to care for you. You can trust the goodness of your father to care for you. You are of more value than all other things in creation. He's crowned us with glory and honor, a little bit lower than the angels. What is man that you're mindful of him? God takes tender care of us. Even though we sin and we stumble, he makes his rain shine on the just and the unjust. We can trust the good care of our Heavenly Father. We can cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7. So can you begin to see how if you take a moment and start to look at God's designs around you in nature, not just get out in nature because nature's relaxing, but go into the scenic world, the theater of God's glory that he has displayed. If you can start to see God's hand and all he's doing, do you see how that causes anxiety to be let go? When you start to see, wow, I, I'm made in God's image. He's going to care for me. Well, there's another lesson, and it's even larger. It's found in verse 33. It's, it's this. Take hold of the ultimate priority. Jesus is not wanting to just stay at the level of, hey, notice the birds and flowers, and we're just going to stop there. You can imagine at this moment of the Sermon on the Mount, people were probably looking around at the birds. He's teaching outside. People were probably looking at flowers. How's Jesus going to get their attention and get them focused again? Well, he's going to give them something even greater to help them focus, to let go of anxiety, and that is take hold of the ultimate priority of life. He gives that to us in verse 33. It's seeking the kingdom of God. He's not teaching to let go of fret or worry just in and of itself. We can see this. Let's look, let's look in verse 31. It's going to ramp up to verse 33. Verse 31 is where the, the shift of gears happens, that word therefore. He says in verse 31, Therefore don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Jesus is teaching that the pagans, those who don't know God, have not learned to trust God for their basic needs. They live a life alienated from God. They're frantic and troubled and cumbered with cares about many things. He's telling them, the Gentiles seek after these things, and the Gentiles, when they have their anxious needs met, it stops there. It's an end in and of itself. It's just for their own self-satisfaction. There's no praise and worship to God. There's no final pursuit beyond that. It's just their own happiness for their own small treasures. And Jesus proves that he knows what we need in what he says next in verse 33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. That might not sound like it fits at first. Wait, Jesus, you were talking about anxiety and noticing these pleasant designs. 
Now all of a sudden you're saying, seek the kingdom? Yes, Jesus is saying seek the kingdom because he's saying, if you're not anxious about things that the world is anxious about, it will free you up that you will no longer be distracted so that you can do what you were created to do. Seek the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the core. This is the way to let go of your anxiety. It's fixate your mind on the kingdom of God. Seek that. Anxiety can't really rest in the, in the soil when it's saturated with the pursuit of the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus advocates that right here in verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. There's a problem, though. You can't just snap your fingers and start seeking the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Our greatest need beyond food, water, clothing, our greatest need is to be reconciled with our creator. All of us have anxiety. All of us have sins and failures and brokenness. God created us to live in a good world. He created a world without sin. But our first parents rebelled against God. They chose to go their own way. And just like them, we too have decided, God, I'm going to decide what I'm going to be most concerned about. God, I'm going to choose what's going to be most highest priority on my heart. If we were to take a poll right now of the different things that have made you anxious this last month, it'd be different. Some of you are really anxious about the type of job you're going to have. Some of you are really anxious about your grades in school. Some of you are really anxious about how things are going between your grandkids and your son or daughter. Some of you are really anxious about the legacy you might leave because you're worried that you got to move. Some of you are worried about things in your house. Some of you are worried about if people like you enough and you're trying your best. We're anxious about all kinds of different things. The common denominator is we have all been guilty of being more anxious about our own life than the glory of God. Because God is good and holy, he punishes that sin and rebellion. He pours out wrath on that. God declares that all those who have not made their primary anxious concern his kingdom, all those who have pursued life, pursuing some other ultimate pursuit beyond God, they will all incur the wrath of God. That's, that's the problem with our broken world, our broken lives. But God gives a solution. In great love, he sends Jesus Christ. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to meet our greatest need, which is reconciliation with God. Isn't it true that when someone becomes a Christian, one of the things that happens just before they become a Christian is they start getting anxious about the things of God and their spiritual state and their spiritual relationship with God. And they begin to realize, I'm sinful. I'm separated from God. Until somebody begins to rightly put their concern on the kingdom of God, they just stay anxious about smaller, trivial things. But when our greatest need begins to be felt on our heart, and that is knowing God, being made right with him, that anxiety is quenched when we see the gospel. Jesus came to earth, lived perfectly, lived full of light, praised God, never sinned, lived a life of love and good deeds, lived a life of miracles proving he was truly God and truly man. And then Jesus went to the cross. Not just to show you a moral example, I want you to sacrifice for others. He did that to meet the greatest need we have. 
to be a remedy for that anxiety that we should rightly have. How can I be made right with God? That's why he went to the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God. He was your substitute. He saves you from the wrath of God. What else do you have to be anxious about other than being made right with God? That's why Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins. And then he rose again. He conquered death. He proved he really was the son of God, silencing all doubters. He proves that God accepted his sacrifice. He gives us peace with God, no anxiety. So that then we can live and just do whatever we want? No, so that we can then pursue and seek after the kingdom of God. That's the ultimate priority of life. That's the one thing your life is to be about, friend, seeking the kingdom of God. You will be so anxious about so many things if that's not your greatest concern. But Jesus provides a way to be made right with God. If you know the gospel, if you see Jesus and what he did and you trust in that and you, you agree with God that your sin is wrong and you, you strive to turn away from your sin and embrace Christ by faith, you will be saved. You will be made right with God. You will be enabled to seek the kingdom of God. Your anxiety will radically change. So how do we seek the kingdom of God? What do we do after we come to know the gospel? Well, we don't ever leave it behind. We do what verse 33 says. Verse 33 is for those who are apart from Christ to hear a call to run to Christ so that they can seek the kingdom of God. Those who are Christians, we're still called to seek the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God simply means his redemptive reign and rule. The kingdom of God, the way we seek it, has actually been told to us throughout the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to stop and take this passage and say, I wonder, I don't, I don't know how to seek the kingdom of God. It's only puzzling to you because you didn't read through the entire Sermon on the Mount and keep it all together. Jesus has been telling us, hasn't he? If you want to flip back, I may go a little too fast, but if you want to keep up, go for it. In Matthew 5.1, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom language. He says in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He sandwiches all the Beatitudes with kingdom language. If you want to seek the kingdom of God, it means pursue the Beatitudes. Pursue the Beatitudes by God's Spirit. He goes on to talk about being salt and light of the earth because we're witnesses for the kingdom. That's how you pursue the kingdom of God. You keep striving to be salt and light. He says there in verse 19 at the end of chapter 5, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So teaching God's commands, obeying them from the heart, that's about pursuing, seeking the kingdom of God. Loving our enemies later in chapter 5, verse 45, so that we can be sons of our father, we can be a family member in his kingdom. We display that by loving our enemies. It goes on and on. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray things like, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We're seeking his kingdom. Do you see, brothers and sisters, how seeking God's kingdom is not some abstract thing that we're, we're left wondering. I guess that just means, you know, think a few warm thoughts about the kingdom today. No, pursue all these things that Jesus has been laying out in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the application for how you seek it. And if you seek those things, anxiety 
just fades. Not because there's real needs and pressures in your life, but because there's something of deeper priority that you are seeking. So if we're going to let go of anxiety, we take hold of this ultimate priority to seek his kingdom where holiness is operative. And that leads us to one final thing. You would think Jesus would be done with his teaching on anxiety, right? Seek this ultimate priority, my kingdom. See my good designs in the world and don't be anxious about your lesser needs. I'm going to take care of them. You would think he'd be done with his teaching, but while the cement is still wet, he gives verse 34. Verse 34, this is the last piece. We'll round out our time on this. The third lesson Jesus gives is take it one day at a time. What a gentle lesson. What a gentle lesson. Jesus says, take it one day at a time. A weak and faltering faith and a lack of trust in God will cause us to zoom right past things of today and reach out and grab that thing happening next week or next month or a little bit down the road that's going to cause us anxiety and we'll, we'll grab that and we'll hold on to it in our hearts today. Jesus says, don't do that. Seek first the kingdom of God, meaning make that your highest priority, your greatest concern, and make that your concern for today. When he says sufficient for the day is its own trouble, he means there's going to be new pressures and challenges and temptations tomorrow that you don't even know about. Don't even try to climb inside of tomorrow today. Live in the moment today. Jesus helps us see that Fear of the future is a great fertilizer for anxious thoughts. We don't know how it's going to turn out when you have to sit in that meeting with your boss two weeks from now and they say, all right, here's our company policy on the vaccine. What are you going to do? We don't have to be anxious and afraid when we're, you know, we're sitting in front of a professor and they hand us a final exam and my whole life's going to be ruined if I don't pass the test. We don't have to worry about that. We don't need to think about all the things tomorrow that will come. We just need to focus on that moment. Jesus gives us so many reasons to focus on today. I wonder how Matthew 6.34 would ring in the ears of those original first hearers, farmers. Many of them were farmers. They may wonder, are we going to have enough rain for the crops later on? You know as well as I, if we start focusing on anxieties of tomorrow, it will distract us from the kingdom priorities of today. Jesus wants to spare us from that. And Jesus calls his followers to be those who look different. They're marked by a noticeable peace in the world. Jesus wants us to be occupied with his kingdom concerns. You may know of other places in the New Testament where Paul had a concern and anxiety for the churches. That was a kingdom concern. It wasn't the kind of anxiety where Paul was just mad and wondering about his own needs. It was a kingdom concern. We see in places like Philippians 2 where Timothy is described as being a young man who was genuinely concerned with the welfare of the Philippians. That word for concern is actually the word anxiety. Jesus is not saying you will have no anxiety in life. He's saying the only anxiety of life that you need is the type of concern for the kingdom. Not a panic, frenetic anxiety that God's kingdom's not going to work out, but 
the type of anxiety that is, that's just a heightened concern of what God's doing and you want to be a part of it and you want to be on mission with him. That kind of anxiety. Have you found the words of Jesus to be true? Have you found that it's hard to let go of anxiety if you're just so fixated on that problem or that thing you fear and you've, you've forgotten, you've lost sight of his good designs, that he cares for you, you've lost sight of his kingdom, you've lost sight of the fact that he's given you today, good works for today. You, if you're grabbing things from tomorrow, if you're forgetting his good works in the world, if you're forgetting his kingdom, you're going to be very anxious, very stressed. And if you're not stressed and you're not worried about the kingdom, your priorities are really messed up. Something else is the treasure of your heart. What is it? Maybe yourself? I don't know. I hope that you'll take to heart what Jesus says. We began our time today asking the question, have you ever gazed at the beauty of a field of Texas blue bonnets? Well, there's only a few times a year when that's possible. But there's something else more captivating, full of glory, available year-round. It's the beauty of a Christian blossoming into the likeness of Christ, pursuing, seeking first the kingdom of God. I pray that that's your pursuit. Your anxiety is going to fade if you seek first the kingdom of God. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your instruction. Father, we thank you that we have deeper and greater resources to fight through anxiety than what the world offers. We thank you, Lord, that you help us be reminded of what's ultimate. We thank you that you have given us so many good designs to gaze at and to take heart from. Father, please help us to, to fix our eyes on you. Lord, help us live out this passage. Help us to see your son Christ who enables it and walks with us in it. We love you, Lord. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.